0: Hey, Cracked fans. With the summer months just around the corner, we know all of you are beginning to think about how you can best maximize your chances to improve your game with the warm weather. Well, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are so excited to tell all of you about the 254 tennis camp happening this summer at Baylor University. Now, over the course of three weeks in June, starting June 12th through the 16th and ending June 26th through the 30th, you'll have the opportunity to learn from 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 some of the best coaches in the business in an all-encompassing tennis experience. You'll have the opportunity to improve each and every part of your game, whether that be on the singles court, whether that be on the doubles court, through drilling, through point play, match play as well. You'll also, of course, receive a free t-shirt for participating in the camp, but also have the chance to see yourself broadcasted. As our Crack Rackets team will be providing coverage of the final day each week at this two-five-four tennis camp. Again, you'll have the opportunity to learn from some of the best coaches in the business. I promise, Coach Michael Woodson and the Baylor team going to make it an extraordinarily enjoyable time. How can you get signed up today? Well, you can learn more information by visiting the Baylor website by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp again that's baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp to sign up today now this camp open to any and all entrants but limited only by age number grade level and or gender again you can learn more about this camp by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp today don't miss out folks gonna be three very exciting fun weeks of tennis down at baylor university be sure to sign up for the 254 Tennis Camp happening at Baylor today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, June 3rd. That was a strange Day of tennis at the 2022 French Open. Now, the headline coming out of the day's events: Rafael Nadal is going to be playing for his 22nd Grand Slam title. Now, in his extended and well-credentialed career, Rafael Nadal has never won both the Australian Open and French Open in the same season. He's now one away from knocking that accomplishment off of his list. He advances past Alexander Zverev in a match that. Was it good? That's a question we can debate. On today's uh, podcast, but of course, ultimately ends in an injury as Zverev tumbles over, severely rolls his ankle as we approach that second set tiebreaker. And look, we still had three hours of tennis from that match to analyze today. So I want to talk about Rafael Nadal's form. How is he playing heading into the final? How do we think he'll recover with just the single day's rest after this semifinal performance? Of course, who's going to be facing Rafael Nadal? It's going going to be Casper Ruud as Ruud advances to the first Grand Slam final of his career. Looked a little shaky at the start of his semifinal match against Marin Cilic, ultimately steadied the ship and really runs out the clock on what was a fantastic performance for Cilic at the 2022 French Open. Of course, ultimately, though, Ruud in the end, able to earn a four-set victory and for Casper Ruud. Had we said this, I know I've said this earlier in the week on the podcast, but had we he said after the Miami final, he was going to make the French Open final. I don't think any of us would have poo-pooed anyone who offered that sort of take. Of course, now we see Rude manifest that take to life as he reaches his first Grand Slam final. I want to talk about his performance, talk about why I think he's peaking at exactly the right moment. Of course, coming up tomorrow for all of you is the French Open Women's Singles final. It's going to be Iga Sviantek taken on Coco Gauff Sviantek on the precipice of securing her place in history. Certainly one of the all-time starts we've seen to a season in WTA history. You add a Grand Slam title onto what she's already accomplished this year. Now we're talking special, one of the most special seasons, I should say, in WTA tennis history. Of course, Coco Gauff looking to earn her first Grand Slam singles title. Plenty for us to project in that match. And then, since we have a little bit more time, a little bit less tennis for us to break down from the action in Paris today. I want to talk and examine what's going on in Little Rock. Always a pleasure for us here in the United States to have Challenger Action return to our shore. Certainly, if you look at the players competing and still alive in Little Rock, many of them with college tennis ties. So obviously, that's going to catch our eyes here at Cracked Rackets. As you can tell, though, it's another jam-packed episode of the Mini Break Podcast for all of you listeners. Plenty for us to dissect and get into. And if we're going to try and cover so many topics always helps me to have some help along the way. Thankfully, I have that once again here on today's show. Joining me on the mini break podcast for the second time this week, I'm getting spoiled as a man you know best as a writer on our website, CrackRackets.com. Writer, of course, for his All About Tennis blog, for the Action Network, and so many other platforms. Of course, a man you know best as a returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast. We know him as David, Gertler, David Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you so much for having me. I got to say, we got to talk Murray Nakashima too. Uh, That's
0: another good one. We should sneak in at least five minutes. You know what? I'm going to make a note right now in the outline, five minutes on all the action happening on the grass courts as well. I'm just not ready, I think mentally, physically, emotionally more than anything else to turn my attention to the grass courts, David, just to see, uh, you know, again, that brand of tennis and then have to really open myself up to the conversation of does this Wimbledon matter? How serious are are we going to see players taking it? Will we see a wave of withdrawals? I'm just not ready to tackle that subject. That's why I've been putting it off. That said, if you go look at the draw this week in Surbiton, it's a pretty damn good
1: draw. It's a 250 draw. uh, Yeah. Kind of in spots. Uh, I I'm always ready for grass court tennis. Then I start watching it and then I'm instantly bored. And then I go back to the class <laughs> because I just don't like all that serve and serve plus forehand. That's about it. And it's kind of boring, but Hey, Murray Nakashima had some good rallies though.
0: Um, no, I think we both are fans of physicality in tennis and the physicality that emerges on a slower surface, such as a clay court or a hard court. And grass court is uh, tennis is not, known for its pronounced physicality. It's known for its shot making. It's known for its aggression. There are certainly moments in a grass court match that are particularly enjoyable. That said, to your point, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be... It's always an interesting transition, I suppose, a is the way it's because well it's just it's so different than the transition. You know, hard courts to clay courts, it's different, but particularly with Indian Wells right before the start of the clay court season, it's not that vast of a change. Going from anything to grass courts, you're just like, This is tennis? You're like, What is this?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's almost yeah, it's almost like a totally different sport. Uh yeah, no. it
0: also happens so quickly. It's a 1-month sprint. It's like, okay, you get June and the first week of July, but then we're going back to the other stuff. And it just, you know, again, it's it's the month that's thrown together, by the time you know it, it's the second week of Wimbledon and then grass court season's done.
1: And then our time, and then then we finally get some more tennis in our time zone, uh, which I'm looking forward to. And then the John Isner Open begins, and everyone, yeah, uh,
0: exactly. Then the real fun begins. We get the Los Cabos stretch, a little city open action. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Exciting to see WTA tennis returning back to Washington D.C. as well. I had the chance to be there last year. It was only an a- eight ATP event. I'm hoping get back there this summer uh, to have the WTA return there, obviously as well is going to be something exciting for tennis fans here in North America.
1: I saw Layla Fernandez is going to play this year.
0: Oh, I think she's hoping to at the same time. I also saw a significant injury with her foot, and she'll be out for Wimbledon. Obviously, City Open a little bit closer, uh, very close to that end date for Wimbledon, although actually I'm pretty sure the City Open's like the last week of July, first week of August, so still two months away. Plenty of time to figure out who's playing what, but again, so many fantastic matches for us to cover here on today's show. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out is because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point and you all know the deal tennis-point.com has the latest equipment at the greatest prices you go there right now and at checkout use our promo code CR15 why do you want to do that a it'll let them know we sent you there and they'll continue to support this show but B, it will allow you to get 15% off all sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis Dash Point. Symbol, not the spelling. Tennis Dash Point dot com. The promo code is CR15. All right. With that said, David, let's start with the matches we saw unfold in pairs. And let's just go chronologically.
1: Okay.
0: I think there were moments in that Sasha Zverev-Rafael Nadal match that were exceptional. Certainly, you look at the passing shots Rafael Nadal was able to produce in those first set breakers. And again, Rafa ultimately a 7 6 6 retirement due to injury victory. Rafa takes that first set, 10-8. He was down a break for the majority of that first set. Breaks uh, Zverev back. I almost called him Sasha. That just doesn't feel right. Breaks Zverev back uh, Four four all in that first set. They trade holds the rest of the set. And I mean, look, much like against Carlos Alcaraz Zverev was in serve bot mode in that first set he was landing 84% of his first serves only had to play 10 points on the second serve now he missed 4 of his 10 second serves in general just 4 double faults was you know 4 of 10 on second serve points in the set but you know other than the complete blank he had which is when he got broken 4 for all he continued to assert himself with his plus one tennis. You look at the rally analysis, breaking down again, the points by rally in that first set Zverev, you know, uh, or excuse me, he was winning the, the physical points. He was able to extend rallies. Now he was protecting his serve, you know, wins 20 points in the zero to four shot rallies, but also winning, you know, he's plus 13 against Rafa in the five plus shot rallies was winning anything physical. And that's really where I want to start our analysis today because Yes, he was landing the first serve, and yes, he was creating opportunities for himself to move the ball around the court, and again, some of those five to eight shot rallies that Zverev won could also qualify as plus one shots because the serve is what set everything up. That said, you look overall in the match— It wasn't the plus one success for Zverev that stood out because you look overall, Rafa plus 15 in the zero to four shot categories against Zverev. But Zverev was plus 11 against Rafa in the five plus shot rallies. And it just felt like throughout the course of this match – and the reason I bring up the first serve to start – is because certainly when Zverev's landing bombs and playing big plus one tennis he's going to disrupt the rhythm of anyone that's just the difficulties of playing someone who's 6 foot 6 that said Rafa felt off throughout the course of this match and again outside of the two ex, you know exceptional passing shots obviously on the set point uh, you know to clinch the the set 4-10-8 and early in six the time. Four. uh and, yeah. yeah exactly and, and to fight off a set point at 6-4 as well that, those were moments of brilliance that just only Rafael Nadal is capable of, and again, it's two passing shots in that breaker, much like it was two passing shots against Felix up 4-3 in the fifth set in their five-set thriller. That said, again, Zverev was up a break for the majority of the second set as well. He had the opportunity to serve for that second set, and yes, Sasha Zverev ultimately blinked, and I want to talk about the him side of this equation momentarily. But as you look at Rafael Nadal, again, 7-6, 6, six all in the second set, three hours, nine minutes on court, ultimately he advances. Yes, it was you know, only a two-set match. But I actually think this is probably the sloppiest tennis he's played in this entire French Open. Is that fair, David?
1: Yes, and I would also say that Zverev's retirement, I think, saved his tournament. Whether win or lose, I don't. His foot, I think, is getting pretty bad. It, the depth on his shots today was not what we expected. He only won in the second set 40% of his first serve points, 8 of 20, and 48% of his second serve points. He was broken four times in the second set. He's lucky. I mean, Zverev was not great on serve in the second set either. He was also broken four times, but. I just the lack of ability to consistently hold serve was very concerning for me if I'm an adult fan. And I think that he should be able to he again, I think that the fact that he didn't have to play five hours, which today, which was it was on that track, is gonna be huge. And I think he should be able to get past Casper Root, but he's but as he as we've learned also today, he's definitely out for Wimbledon. I don't know. I think his foot is worse than we're than we think. And I am concerned about the foot and I wouldn't be shocked if, if he retired in the final. I really wouldn't. I think something serious is off. Something was really off today.
0: Well, uh, you look at the numbers for him. 21 winners against 26 unforced stairs, you know, on paper that's not particularly atrocious but again you're looking at a guy who went plus 14 against Novak freaking Djokovic in his yeah. quarterfinal match and you know for Rafa you mentioned that second set How many plus one forehands did he miss in the net or spraying out wide? And again, the success Virov was able to have with his cross-court forehand, the depth, the pace, the sting of that Rafa down-the-line shot, it wasn't generating the errors I anticipated the heaviness of that ball would generate out of Virov. And we should talk about the conditions because, of course, there was rain in the area. They ultimately play this match under the, the roof. It added to the humidity. It slowed things down immensely for both players the match became a physical slug again three hours of play in under two sets of tennis crazy that certainly played a factor in why Rafa's shots didn't seem to have the particular sting that they usually did at the same time it was how he adjusted 17 of 26 at the net i don't have the drop shot number uh in front of me. I know he hit twenty seven drop shots according to the stats in the match. I imagine he won about twenty of those twenty seven points, probably, you know, two thirds of or, you know, a little bit over two thirds, seventy percent range and just he found little cra- cracks and little angles and did a great job of once he, you know, did he abandon all positioning on the Zverev first serve? Absolutely. But what he started to do is just moonball that return back and Zverev didn't take it as an overhead, didn't try to serve in volley, let that return bounce. And, the, you know, again, eventually Rafa found his range and was able to land those returns right next to the baseline or beyond the service line and just get the point back to neutral. And that's when the nerves would creep in for Zverev. The errors would creep in for him. Now, there were times when, again, his aggression was outstanding. And I mentioned the 21 winners to 26 unforced errors for Rafa, 40 winners for uh, Zverev against 47 unforced errors. This match was played on his terms. This match was on Sasha Zverev's racket. Again, he was up on break in the first set. He served for the second set. I don't think that's a hot take to say. But he was also 21 of 45 at the net, which is indicative of Rafa would either dip the first passing shot at his feet or just make it a tough first volley. Zverev wasn't always confident enough to put that first volley away, and Rafa was moving well enough and was good enough to make those passing shots and keep the pressure on Zverev and find whatever it it was in that second set, I believe, in terms of breaks of serve. Yeah, four breaks of serve for Rafa in that second set as well. I mean, again... He was his worst he's been in the tournament playing against arguably the guy who's been the second best player in the tournament. And he was still up seven, six, six all and had the momentum on his side when the injury happened.
1: That's true. I, I still just think Zverev kind of choked it away both sets. You're right. He, I know Zverev was the better player. Yeah. I, I just don't the, the, you brought up the net. I was going to, I was going to touch on the net. Uh, when, and I, when you brought it up, I, 24 out of 45 for Rafa when, when Sasha approached the net. That's very good. I'm surprised that Varev kept approaching the net as often as he did. I guess he wanted to follow up you know, on his big ground strokes. Like, like I said earlier, Rafa was landing a lot of his ground strokes short in the court, which allowed Varev to move forward. But it's so tough to approach the net against Rafael Nadal, as we saw in the first set tie break. I, yeah, I mean, Zverev against Alcaraz served brilliantly, and but and then the second set, Zverev his his first serve percentage dipped from eighty four percent to sixty seven percent. He only won forty six percent of his first serves and thirty six percent of his second serves. As you mentioned, he was broken four times. If you look at those service numbers, it's just shocking it was even that close. Yeah, I, no. I but the thing is, when I look forward to the final. Can Casper, do you really trust Casper Rude to win that match and best of five, Roland Garrett's final, his first Grand Slam final? Because the opportunity is there. Well,
0: I'm, I'll answer that question throughout the course of this podcast, I promise. But let's put a note on the Zverev end, who obviously goes down with an ankle injury. And it's always worth mentioning when you bring up Alex Zverev. He faces significant allegations uh, of serious abuse of his former girlfriend that have been written about in both Racket Magazine, Slate.com. You all can go read the pieces. And to some extent, the ATP has absolutely been bailed out because the idea of Zverev knocking out Alcaraz, knocking off Nadal, being a Grand Slam winner while those allegations remain unaddressed by the ATP tour, spotlight would have been on them had Alex Zverev captured this title. And that's one piece of the equation you always should discuss when bringing up Zverev at the same time. If they're going to continue to allow him to play, you have to address the player we see on court. His ability in the outer thirds of the court, particularly on clay, are almost, you know, again, it's the elite tier. It looks at times, especially with his backhand out of the corner, like Novak Djokovic and just the pace he can find down the line. Rafa started incorporating some serve and volley in that second set to just try and mix things up. And a couple of times Rafa was up 40 love or, you know, again, 40, 30, 40, 15 points would try to throw in that serve and volley and Zverev would be able to just extend and dip that backhand low at the feet and Rafa would wasn't able to execute the easy plus-one volley, there's like three people who can do that. Zverev is one of the—it's probably Zverev, Djokovic, and a locked-in Nadal, and Medvedev on hard courts. Like, that's the list of players who can do that right now. And uh, to what we've been saying, he served for the second set. He's up a break early, and for the majority of that first set, it was up 6-2, right? I believe it was up 6-2. 6-2, yeah. Yeah, in that first set breaker. Alex Zverev had multiple chances in this match, and the longer it went, the more like you felt things leaned Zverev's direction, and it was a war of attrition, and that, just to your point. Physically, Nadal wasn't extending rallies. Yes, he would track down the passing shots, but Zverev was having success, you know, Finding the ball early on the rise. And again, when he could extend points, Rafa would bail him out with early errors. So it just, it, again, at times this match was ugly. I think anyone who watched that first set tiebreaker thought that was outstanding tennis. What you continue to learn, because how many times is the story in a big match that Zverev wins or loses is, oh, that wasn't the best tennis, is look, Zverev makes you play uncomfortable tennis because he can go into grinder mode, which is where he's most comfortable, but then he's also a six foot six server who can steal your rhythm, and that is notable. It's just we talk about this too frequently. It can be ugly, but that's the speed Zverev wants it to be, and I think when everyone looks back at this match, David, and I swear I'm going to shut up and let you talk now— it's that...
1: Take your time. Take your time.
0: Uh, oh, I appreciate it. But it's that Zirev plays at his speed. This match was on his terms. And to your point, obviously, again, hopefully he recovers soon. We see him back on tour. It was so notable when Rafa, after the match goes, he's not just going to win one slam. He's going to win many slams. And well, What else was he going to say? <laughs> well... Many slams, though, like you could have just I, said he'll win here someday, leave it there. But to the conviction in his voice of he's going to anyways, uh, I, it's not like a serious quote. Stop you know, the presses. It, it, We're not going to write it, you know, a popcorn yeah, yeah. piece on it. But it, it is worth noting that that was said. And so when you then, look, yeah, I yeah. guess my theme would be this, David. I agree with you. Obviously, that second set tiebreaker was going to be massive. Yeah. But but through the first two sets. If you're asking me who was the better player, the answer was, I mean, how can you watch that first set of him overcome the 6-2 deficit and not say Rafa? But for the majority of the three hours, the better player was Alex Zverev.
1: I, I agree. I I totally agree. In the first set, Nadal won 55, or 51, 55 of 107 in the total points of 51%. That's negligible. I think... I, I agree that Zverev was the better player. I do want to point something out that just I've Please. kept in my mind since you said it. Um, you did you say that you thought that Zverev was better when he was in grinder mode?
0: I, more comfortable is what I was is what okay. I said. But there are times when he's better because again he can sustain. The physicality against Rafael Nadal, he can absorb a couple of forehands. And if Rafa leaves one short, you know, Zverev is going to generate enough depth on his backhand, either down the line or cross court, that it's just not an easy plus one pickings for Rafael Nadal. I wish I remembered the specific point, but there was a point where Rafa was trying to cheat over and hit the inside out forehand and get into his forehand combinations when he thought he had Zverev stretched in the backhand corner. And Zverev just laced one at his feet down the center and caught Rafa trying to cheat and it produced an unforced error from Rafa missing the net and it's just like how many players are capable of hitting that ball on clay I'll tell you what and we can go to the flip side of Kasparud momentarily but I do think he's with what I saw with him against Chilich today I absolutely think he does have the physicality to absorb the first blow get Rafa stretched, make that match physical if he's able to sustain his level to today. But with that said, the final piece of this Nadal-Zverev conversation before we move on, and I know we started with it, but to go full circle here because I don't think we answered the question, if Rafa plays like this, again, on its own in a vacuum, is this good enough to beat others? Because let's uh, we've talked about the glass half empty perspective for Rafa. The glass half full is, did you see that tiebreaker David? Did yeah. you see what he was able to come with? Uh, come up with down two six. Did you see the fact that despite not holding serve until you know the the doldrums of the second set, <laughs> he's still able to get that set to a breaker? He played bad, and he still found himself up a set on probably the tougher challenger in Sasha Zverev. Although again, if Casper plays and serves like he did today, Rud is going to challenge or- Rafa. That said, again, was this enough from Rafa?
1: I would say yes, unless the foot is gets worse, because we also have to keep in mind this is Rude's first major final. That's not easy to yeah. be on this big stage in your first major final. He hadn't been past, I want to say, the third round of a major until uh, until this uh, major. And I don't think, yes, he looked great in the last three sets. Chilich was running out of steam. Chilich's lower margin game started to falter. I still haven't been that impressed with this tournament. Uh, I just, ha- I think that he's dropping me- me- more sets than I expected. And to go back to, sorry, to go all the way back to your, my question and you, what you said about Zverev, I think he's always better when he's being aggressive and using a 6 six frame to his advantage. Not always, but usually. Yeah, Like against Alcaraz, when he just took the fight to Carlos, I think that's when Zverev's at his best, as opposed to when he's standing, because we see Zverev, I call it pusher mode, standing three, four, five feet behind the baseline, just getting getting it back consistently. Um, and it can work a lot of the times against lower level players, but against an Alcaraz, against a player of that higher caliber, he, he's at his best when he's hitting those huge first serves, And uh, attacking and playing attacking with the backhand, especially. Um, Sorry to go backwards than backwards.
0: You never have to apologize to me, David. I mean, look, with Rafa, he's played 345 matches now at Grand Slams or 345 completed matches, according to Tennis Abstract. What do you think his record is?
1: 345. I will say, oh, my God, I'm so bad at this. I will say... Three hundred and forty-five dash forty five.
0: So that's an exceptional guest. He's three hundred and four and forty one. You were okay. four matched up. Even He's won, better. I, yeah, yeah, you were within format. You are. If this was the prices right, you're on stage. You're playing the mini game. That's an exceptional okay. guest, David. <laughs> um, I mean, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Yeah. He's won 88 percent of his matches at Grand Slams. It's absurd. This is his thirtieth yes. final, and we all know the big three have established a legacy of their own. Three people have made thirty-plus singles finals on the men's side. Federer's made thirty-one. Djokovic has made thirty-one. Rafa's made thirty. I mean. Like Again, they're inventing the 30-slam final club. It's a new club, David, that we have to make just for those three because it's like, well, we need another superlative for you. And just, again, he's never won Australia and the French Open in the same season in his career. He's one match away from doing that. He's 36 freaking years old, 29-3 and overall on the season. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. And hold on for the ride because... God he he's an absolute warrior. I mean again, the idea of him having a two slam lead if you're Novak Djokovic going to that US Open, you're tied at 20, Rafa's out for the season with injury. You're thinking I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to be the guy. I yeah. am like I could finally pad my stats and put this GOAT argument to bed. And now it's been ripped back wide open because as many accolades as Djokovic exceeds Rafa in 30 and 29 career head to head, and Rafa is going to have a two sl- potentially have a two slam advantage like that in itself is an extra discussion point, point. and so I mean what this guy does is just remarkable.
1: What percentage? I'll, I'll play the same game as you. What percentage of clay court matches do you think Nadal has won in his career?
0: In- do I do? Can I get? The, oh, just straight percentage.
1: Yep, according to the ITF website. Uh, what, what I'm, percentage?
0: I'm gonna say ninety. Is it a is it to a decimal point or is it rounded?
1: I'm just round. I'm rounding it for you.
0: Okay, I'm gonna say ninety-five. Eighty-eight. Oh wow, that's a little. let's probably
1: advanced. include some challengers too. No, that.
0: that's. I'm actually. I can't believe I'm disappointed in that. He's as good. Okay, so there's the answer. Is he's as good on clay as he is at the slams, or as good at the slams as he is on clay? Like, come on now. That's just absolutely absurd. But look, it's a first-time match for Rafa in the final in Kasparud, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but as you look for Kasparud today, he just took the legs out from underneath Marin Cilic. Kasparud ultimately 3-6, 6-4, 6-2, 6-2 victory over Cilic, and look, the big man played a long, physical five-sat match against Andre Rublev, which was really his first physical test of the tournament, but... There was only one day off between the quarterfinals for Rude and Chilich and their semifinal matches here today. Chilich came out of the gate hot. Was playing the plus one tennis, asserting himself with his forehand like he had all tournament long, won seventy-five percent of his first serve points, seemed to you know, clean you know, two for two on break point chances, seemed to really be striking the Casper Rude serve on rhythm, and Rude only makes fifty-seven percent of his first serves. In that first set, only three winners against five unforced errors for Rude. Really didn't have much of a chance against any uh, in anything he was doing. Chilich was dominating the rallies and dictating the terms. Look at the short rallies again. Thirty-eight of the fifty-eight points they played in the first set were zero to four shots. And you know, again, Chilich taking advantage of that fact. That said, as the match was extended. As the match continued to progress, Casperud was able to slowly but surely extend the rallies and again make the match more physical, while also maintaining his plus one discipline. And you look at the final stats in this match: Casperud a plus seventeen advantage to Chilich in the zero to four shot rallies, eighty two points one for Casperud to sixty five to Chilich. Rude only plus one in the five to nine plus shot categories, but there were really weren't that many five plus shot rallies throughout the course of this match, you know, this was very much one of those seventy percent of the points are zero to four shots as the stats. stats. Yeah, as the stats would indicate but I think you have to credit Ruud. Can you imagine, David, how frustrating it must be to go up against a player like a Marin Childs? I always equated to playing with my doubles partner, Max Rothman, in warm-ups. I would always refuse to warm up with him, and he'd get so salty about it. But I was just like, dude, I want to grind. I just want to hit as many balls as humanly possible in the 15 minutes we have before we start the match. And you're just going to be slapping winners and like trying to slap the whole time, and that's no fun for me. Like I'm not <laughs> here to do that. That's what playing Marin Cilic is like. Is he's yeah. not going to give you rhythm. Is the moment you leave a ball short, he's going to try and end the rally with a forehand, go big or, you know, open up the court to open up the second inside in ball with his forehand, whatever it may be. Rude never wavered. He continued to hit his spots extraordinarily well throughout the course of this match on his first serve. And you look for him overall, 16 aces uh, throughout the course of this match for Casper Rude. He was disciplined with his plus one execution. He found ways to extend rallies physically, was hitting the backhand out of the corner with as good of depth as I have seen from him throughout the course of this 2022 clay court season. You're right to the point you were making earlier, David. He wasn't exceptional but he was really good at everything and again, given some of the shakiness we saw from Rafa today, is this version of casper Rood's really good good enough or dare I say great enough to pull off the upset of upsets in his first Grand Slam singles final
1: if Nadal's foot holds up now okay. <laughs> that's my simple answer i i i just don't I just don't think so I don't the backhand was pretty good today. I don't think it's solid enough to consistently hold up when you have Nadal's heavy lefty forehand going cross-court into that rude back. And I just don't, I think he's going to leave some balls short. It's going to come down to, can he serve like he did today? Six, like you said, 60, 16 aces. Uh, and zero double faults. He won 64% of his second serve points uh, compared to Chilich, which only won 44. He won 71% of his first serve points compared to Chilich, only won 68%. And he served 64% uh, first serves and he's got to keep that first serve percentage probably above 60% um, and only broken twice over four sets. So I do think that if he can serve like he did today and get a bunch of forehands, he has an outside shot especially if Nadal's foot's not okay. But like I said earlier about that first Grand Slam final, I don't believe in his backhand. And he's been dropping sets, you know, not just to Chillich today. He's dropped sets all tournament. And it hasn't been, yes, he's on a, uh, you know, he won Geneva the week before. So he's right now on a, let's see, a four, eight, a 10 game or 10 match winning streak. But I've seen, I think last season, before the loss to Davidovich, uh, he played better tennis, clay court tennis than he has. But today was a step in the right direction. And it's just to get back to what you're saying about Chilich. it's just so disappointing that because Marin Chilich, yes, he doesn't play the style of tennis that I like, but he seems like a really nice guy. And I really wanted to see him in all four uh major singles finals, which he was a match away from doing. Um, and so he just, his serve let him down today. Like I said, 68% first serve 44% second serves uh, 10 aces, which is a lot, you know, for a lot of players, that's fine. But for Chilich, you know, given, that I think he had 33 against Rublev that's not good enough. He was only broken twice against Rublev. He's broken five times today. Um, and really five times in the last three sets. So the serve, he just didn't have enough in the gas tank and Rude's level improved uh, from his previous tournament or previous matches. So so here's
0: the thing, David, looking at Casper Rude's resume via Tennis Abstract and shout out to Jeff and the team. As always, Casper Rude has played 21 total clay court tournaments since August 2020. He's made the semifinals or further in 13 of the events, 13 of them. That's pretty damn good from Kasper Root. And I think because when you look at the mechanics of this year's clay court season, the early loss to Dimitrov in Monte Carlo, the losses to, you know, Carino Busta, Van Skop, Skoplajevic in Barcelona, Munich, Madrid, respectively. The thing was, he started to find his rhythm by the end, started to find ways to learn u- uh, to win ugly. He, you know, makes that semi-final in Rome, plays the week before the French Open, wins in Geneva as well. And I think the thing that's most impressive for Kasparut is, does it look like there's any physical wear or tear on the 23-year-old's body? He's now won, what, uh, 10 consecutive matches, and yet he looks as fresh as if it's the first round of the tournament, as if he has had a week off, and, you know, that was the opposite. For Marin Cilic, obviously here today, the balloon definitely burst for him, especially in set number three when Kasperud got that early break of serve was a deuce game. And, you know, Cilic was able to fight off a couple of break points before Rude just able to land a Rafa-esque deep loopy moonball return that was just neutral that eventually draws the error from Cilic as he tried to hit the swinging volley. You know, yeah, much like Zverev, there were moments where Chilich had overheads on his racket that he sent wide and sprayed in big moments. And there were certainly some opportunities for Chilich in set number two. That said, when Casper was able to get that breakthrough and how he was able to hold in particular, in I think it was that, you know, 5 4 service game where he goes down love 40. Or maybe that was the 4 3 service game, but he's down love 40 and able to find his way to a hold in that second set to stay in front by the break. That's the big chops you're going to need in a Grand Slam final. And again, 13 semifinals are further on Clay in his past 21 events. This is his first Grand Slam final. It was his first Grand Slam semifinal, obviously. What are
1: know. the, well, the per- just, proportions?
0: Just, just to finish this quickly, yeah, I would yeah. say, you know, again, this felt like, especially after the Miami final, this felt like a possibility for Kasparud this season. The success he's had over the past 15 months is, it was not a direct pathway, but given how the draw broke out, this is not particularly shocking. Like, again, coming into the tournament, it was Pass or it was Kasparud. That's who you're picking to advance to the final. In the end, it's Kasparud who emerges out of the bottom half.
1: Well, I guess my question for you, given that stat, is we often talk about Rude and In the 250s, what proportion of those 13 finals were 250s versus 500s and Masters 1000s?
0: That is an event I can't answer because I'm not able to separate by level here on Tennis Abstract. If you tell that to Jeff, I promise you he'll have the app functional and able to do it uh, within the next hour. I mean, I can tell you, you know, again, of the 13 semifinals, he's made semifinals at the French Open. He's done it Rome 2020, Monte Carlo 2021, Madrid 2021, and Rome 2022. So five of the 13 semifinals were at Masters or Slam events pretty you know again the only time he didn't make the semifinals or further at a master's event on clay in the past two and a half years monte carlo this year madrid this year but i think he's more than made up for it with this french open run
1: yeah okay i his that's always been the thing is rude is the vulture that's taken advantage of the two fifties. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's just what, you know, a narrative that sometimes goes around. So I was just kind of curious if there is a, you know, a breakdown. Uh, Yeah,
0: no, I think that's, uh, I, I think that's completely fair. Um, and yeah, I just think again, you look at the quality of play for him during the stretch of time. Again, fifty-eight and fourteen overall on clay uh, against opponents ranked outside the top twenty. Casper Rude, forty-five and seven against top twenty opponents, thirteen and seven against top ten opponents on clay. You know, he's now three and five. I mean, again, he was in the mix. Coming into this tournament, he was the one probably should have snuck him. Well, we, you know, we did our previews before the draws, and that's why Zverev was number five opposed to Kasparud in terms of most likely to win the event on our list. But, you know, we discussed Kasparud during that podcast, and had we had the draws in front of us before it came out, he would have been on the list. And so, again, it's a credit to Kasparud for getting through to the event. We're going to talk about that match tomorrow and preview it extensively, but I want to give you the chance to do that, David. If Kasparud is to win, you and I know you've said this already, you really just think it's let's say Rafa plays the match from start to finish. He's not bowing out due to injury. what what is a cas I mean, tough to say, but what does a Kasparud victory look like?
1: it it looks like him landing a lot of first serves. high first serve percentage, high first serve and second serve, one percentage. and it involves a lot of, uh, serve plus one with the forehand um, an aggressive forehand play on return as well. Is that kind of what you were thinking too?
0: I mean, certainly it starts with him hitting his spots on the forehand and uh, with the serve and moving that forehand around, whether it's the do side slice out wide to the Rafa backhand, then his plus one forehand inside out. I mean, again, to some extent, and I said this yesterday with David Kane, it's, it's Dr. Evil versus mini me. Like there's a lot that Casparu does that, that are shades and shadows of what Rafael Nadal tries to execute, the difference just being Kasparud's a righty. I mean again the physicality I saw from Rude today if he can absorb that first blow from Rafa and find generate enough depth with his backhand out of the corner now that's the struggle obviously Rude does not have Zverev's driving backhand he's going to be able to play more slice and perhaps try to keep Rafa on uh, you know off speed uh, off rhythm but Rude's going to have to make his down the line backhand like that shot's far more important to him and the combinations he has to play than it was to Sasha Zverev I mean again though I do think physically, Rude's going to be able to absorb the first blow, and with the depth he was able to generate out of the corners today, if he can make the match physical and win free points the way Zverev was able to with the first serve, it could be a very similar script to the semifinal. I mean, the game plan's there for Kasparu to execute. I still think there are some other little things as well Rafa can do, but it's going to be a good match. I'm thinking four sets, David.
1: That's fair. And it's just so funny. And I completely agree with you, but it's just hard to compute. The longer the match goes, the better that is for Rude when he's playing Rafael Nadal. That's just over history, just not been the case, but that's the reality that we're living in.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. With that said, you're going to change your pick from our last pod. You're sticking Rafa?
1: I think, what did I say? Rafa in three? I'll, I'll, I'll give Rude a a set, so I'll say Rafa. For maybe kind of like, uh, remember when he played Dominic team, and uh, like team came out really hot for a set, maybe won the first set, and then eventually faded. I can see a similar scenario happening here, yeah. um, where Rude maybe comes out of the gate full of ener- energy, maybe not with the nerves. I don't know. I think he gets a set some a set somewhere, um, but I think Nadal ultimately comes through. Yeah. Um,
0: I. I, I... Uh, I think that's fair. I, I, again... It's very tough to pick against Rafael Nadal, particularly twice. Uh, if you if you already pick Novak Djokovic at the start of the season. With that said, we talked about it extensively yesterday, but I wanted to talk about it more here today as well as tomorrow's match is our Roland Garros women's singles final between Iga Swiatek, Coco Golf. Of course, Iga Swiatek, riding all sorts of win streaks heading into this match. You look for her now on the season a ridiculous 43-3 and overall, 34-match uh, win streak, excuse me, heading into the match. Of course, this is her second Grand Slam singles final in her career, the last one being the 2020 Roland Garros final, which, of course, she ultimately went on to win. On the flip side is Coco Gauff, who, by the way... Much like Barbara Krejcikova last year, competing in both the singles and doubles final for Goff to reach that final with a new partner in Jessica Pagula, a testament to the doubles prowess she presents. And look, Coco Goff- American semifinal. Coco golf has yet to drop a set at this 2022 French Open. You know, the title just said, she's played one seven six set against Van Uteveenck in the second round. Other than that, 7-5 first set with Sloan, everything else 6-4 or tidier. Let's start again. Same exercise. We'll start on the flip side because I think the ego question is a little bit easier. It, what does a Coco Gauff victory look like, David?
1: Okay. So a Coco Gauff victory looks like, again, landing a lot of first serves, but also really controlling the baseline with their backhand and rushing Sviatek from that wing. Her, it has, her forehand has to be as steady as it has been. And like we talked about last time, the clay gives her a little extra time on the forehand get, to set up, and it's not as erratic as it is on um, faster surfaces. But Sviatek has relatively struggled when she's playing against power players. That's why I really feel like she has to go after her backhand. And really take as many backhands as possible. Now, Sviatik's backhand in the cross-court backhand exchanges, her backhand was phenomenal against uh, Kazakina. Uh, Maybe not phenomenal, but it was pretty damn good. It was a really solid shot that she was was. I don't think she made an unforced error off of that wing. It, and she was stepping up in the court and ripping the backhands too. And that's not always what we've seen from Sviatek from the backhand side. Mm-hmm. With that said, I think Goff has the advantage from that wing. Now, Sviatek might have the advantage everywhere else, but from the backhand side, I like Goff's backhand more. And So can I stop you there for a second? Yeah, yeah.
0: Just because – and I want to let you keep going piece by piece. I apologize.
1: Oh, no, no. Do, do not No, apologize. but
0: you're right. I don't apologize. <laughs> With the backhand in general. I mean, you, so the serve, the backhand, that's the foundation of the golf success, right? I think right. that's part number one where we should start. And honestly, that's two parts. So let's start with the serve. You look for Coco Goff here this season. Hold percentage overall for Coco Goff now, uh, excuse me, with the additional uh, French Open results now creeping above that 70% line. Now, Last season was a career high for her, 72.3, and she's improved her hold percentage in each uh Each season she's played in full season she's played on the WTA tour. I do think the serve has been the foundation of her success. She has a first serve that, regardless of how slow these Roland Garros courts can play at times, is going to penetrate the court. Is going to create opportunities for her. Her ability to find the slice out wide on the do side. Her ability to mix up her spots, t wide and body on the ad you're just never quite sure what you're going to get. And look, we've talked about this before. Iga Svantec has broken serve over 50% of the time this season, putting together arguably the best return of serve season in WTA history. Certainly the best return season in WTA recent memory. Goff has to land a high percentage of first serves because you just can't give Iga time to tee off and play on her terms, uh, uh, on your in your service games because she's going to get that chance eventually. You just can't give her anything for free. You can't make it any easier for her to earn those breakpoint chances. At the same time, in each of her last two matches, Iga Sviantik has come out slow out of the gates. I think the same even against Junction Wen, you know, that first set was a bit slow. I think quarterfinals, same deal. Kasaki you know that was really competitive through those first four games. Again, it was two all before the two and one onslaught that eventually followed. I think if Goff is landing first serves early in the match, David, this is why to go full circle, I think there's a world where she goes up three or four one, just depending on who serves first and is able to find some free points as Iga's, you know, if Iga comes out shaky out of the gates once again, as she has in a couple of her past, you know, two matches against, again, Pagulin Kasatkina and I just – like, again, if Goff's not up 3-1, 4-1 after the first four games, well, we've seen what happens when Iga hits the burners. Like, you're just not going to keep up for her with her. So I think that first serve in particular at the start of the match, if she can escape with some free points, there's a world where she's up 3-1, 4-1. And I think she, that, that world has to be the world we live in tomorrow if we want to see a Coco Goff upset.
1: Yeah, and look – Y'all know that, or some of y'all know that I am not a lifelong golf fan. So I'm being, I'm being, a, when I say I think she can be competitive tomorrow, I, I'm not BSing y'all. Um, okay. She's won over, she's won at least 67% of, or two thirds of her uh, first serves in uh, five of her six matches so far this tournament and i believe in most of the matches I, maybe the last five i think uh she's won over 6 or she's served over 60% first serves in she needs to have land a high percentage of first serves in play and she needs to win a high percentage of those points easier said than done i but look she hasn't dropped a set this tournament she's been playing amazing tennis again i'm if i'm saying this then she really has uh and I've been really impressed with both her rally tolerance, her backhand, her forehand's been really solid. It's and her net play, as you mentioned, the doubles. This is now her second grand slam final and her last three grand slams. She made the U S open final with McNally was really close to winning that. And now she's in with Pagula. And like I said earlier, it was an all American uh, semifinal against Townsend keys. It's so great to see Taylor Townsend back out there, but that's just a side note. Um, Anyways, the net play is also going to be important because against Trevisan, she was really smart about when to come into net. And she's really effective volleying um, in general. Uh, hits her volleys really crisply. Uh, I know she only won 7 to 14 net points against Trevisan, but that's more of, I get I think, more of an outlier than uh, what she typically does. I really am impressed with her net game. I'm impressed with her uh instincts on the court and I think that I really do think she can be competitive, Alex. I what competitive means relative to Sviatek, I don't know. I think that she can you know I think what did I say last time? Seven five six three or seven five six two. I think that sounds about right to me. Uh, I think but hey, seven five six two is a lot more competitive against Sviatek than most of the field. So Yeah no she should do that. And to your
0: point again, about the backhand... Iga Świątek loves to open up the court with her inside in uh, inside out forehand and go heavy spin high elevation to that side of the court. Draw a short ball from her opponent and then you're paralyzed because is she going to go inside out again? Is she going to turn inside in? Oh, you got the ball to her backhand. You think, oh, I've gotten back to neutral. Nope, she's going to snap a ball down the line back you uh, back at you and just change direction. The difference is to your point that ball, which is one of the foundations of where Iga builds her success, is going to be better absorbed by. Coco Goff. To your point, she just has better strength on that backhand wing getting in and out of the corner than 94% of WTA players, maybe even higher than that number when she's striking the ball her best. Now, the issue is the heavy, high topspin forehand, the drive of her backhand into the Coco Goff forehand wing. I don't care that it's not a clay court. Iga's weapons are going to disrupt your rhythm regardless of surface. And Coco Golf obviously has a forehand that is very disruptible in its rhythm, and you know again, if she, early on if Sviantek's not landing the first serve or she's throwing in kick serves, Golf's going to have more time to load on that wing to take her bigger cuts on that forehand and you know open up space for herself, generate depth. I thought her on the run forehand against Trevisan was. Probably the reason she was able to separate so well at the end of that first set and early on in that second set, she was just roping that ball with depth and, you know, su- such great accuracy and she's going to have to execute that well, obviously, again, against Ega. I just, can't she keep up with the relentlessness of Svantec? Because even if Svantec has a bad opening 20, by the hour mark of the match, she's in cruise control and she's in Iga mode. And I just don't think anyone's gonna beat Ega mode. So again, I my number was seven five six two. I think Goff is gonna go up early in the first set, but I think Ega finds her gears, and again with this Grand Slam title, will be in the pantheon with the Celices, Navratilova's graphs, and you know Everett's Serena's in terms of the five you know players with the best starts in wta season history she's already right there grand slam semifinals in australia finals at the french open a title here puts her over the top and then yeah. you have to remember well, again what the 30, a 35 match win streak she's already over the top i should say but this one it's the mount rushmore pantheon sort of season
1: i do agree be- but Bart, her biggest competition retired
0: yeah, uh but is that her fault
1: no but it is a. You know, something that at least no, it's a know.
0: footnote to discuss in the season. But again, she's also 21. Like, it's not her fault that she's better than everyone already. Like, I, I yeah. would it be great to see Bar again? That's a discussion. Let's see what happens in the final. We're both taking Sviantek in straight sets. I mean, there's a reason yeah, we're doing that. You look at the money line: Iga Sviantek minus 600 tomorrow. Now, I do think it's interesting. Money line first set: Coco Golf plus 330. That might be what I like the most. Over 18 and a half games tomorrow, which would be 6'3, six, 6'3 three, six, three or closer, and 7'5, 6'2 does just hit that 18 game mark. Interesting. So that would be the under, which is plus 115. Eighteen and a half and a is a good game, Mark. They know what they're doing. The number I would hit, how about this? Over nine and a half games in the opening set plus 130. That's my pick of the day. I, I never like that,
1: though, because what if Sviatek serves first? And then... No, and then but, but, but either
0: way, then then it's a 6-4 first set because I, I just think Goff is going to be up a break early. In, okay. At the start of the match, I think she has to be; otherwise, it's going to be a blowout. And you know, again, there's a lot of fun things. You can eager Sviantek to win, hit the most aces, and the least amount of double faults is plus five fifty. I don't hate that either. That's a fun. Is,
1: that's a fun one. It is important to note. I think that at least to my eye, Goth did look more stressed than Sviantek in the semifinals. I thought.
0: Sure, but now she's through to the final and she's the yeah. significant underdog. And normally playing in your first slam singles final wouldn't matter, but she's been in a doubles final before A and B. She's such a significant underdog against Fiontek that that's what you're worried about. You're like, I just don't want to lose O and O, let alone, you know, again, f- regardless of the slam final, I got to be focused and locked in. Otherwise, Iga's going to blitz me. And that's why, again, I think the start of the match is so critical. Uh, for both of these players, but again, we're both taking Schuylantek in straight sets. We will be back tomorrow, certainly to recap that match. With that said, let's do a little challenger action before I let you go. Let's start with bring Ryan. it on NCAA tennis champion Ben Shelton has now won. Let's see if you start at the round of 64, six plus three, nine consecutive matches dating back to the NCAA tournament as he advances to his first career challenger semifinal double header victory. For him today, knocks out Emilio Gomez in straight Good sets. Win. comes back later on in the day, uh, earns another straight set victory over Buruchaga. I mean, you look for Sheldon. I actually thought he was a little bit limited in that first match against Emilio Gomez. Wasn't swinging as freely on the serve with the forehand. felt like he had a little bit of a back issue. And then he comes out in the quarterfinal session and is just, again, swinging freely. His first serve is already a challenger level, if not better, sort of weapon. The lefty serve out wide forehand combination on the ad side is just lethal. And this is why I continue to say, obviously, his father is his head coach at Florida. And Ben has been pretty adamant he wants to go back for another season. If he plays enough matches, he's just not going to be able to because he's going to be top 200. And at that point, I don't know if you can go back.
1: Yeah, I I first noticed Ben Sheldon in US Open Qualies last year yeah. when he beat Michael Moe. And that and when I was watching him, I'm like, wow, this guy has ATP tour potential with that lefty serve and how aggressive he is from the baseline. I mean, Emilio Gomez is a good hardcore player, and Sheldon routined him and then beat Burukaga, who puts a lot of Balls in play, and he was able to hit right through him. I'm really impressed with uh, Ben Sheldon. And then another one of your guys, uh mm-hmm. also won today. Well, um, let's get
0: to him in a second because I want to finish the conversation okay. with Ben. Lefty. Six three six four. We're gonna have him on the podcast next week to talk about oh, everything. Sort of yeah, what do you think? Because he kind of pulls up on the forehand, right? And it's just like a kind of a windshield wiper sort of thing. That said, the racket speed he's able to generate, David, like to your point, it just even against challenger level players, it stands out. Where they're just like the whip he's able to put on his ball. Again, straight set wins over guys in Harrison and Gomez who are just gonna push you physically and force you to okay. make the extra ball but they really couldn't hurt. Same with Ruru Yeah, and they really couldn't sustain, again, hurting Ben. Like, Ben just wore them down with his— was able to match them blow for blow and then had more weapons at his disposal. Like, the Kubler match tomorrow is fascinating because if Ben has this same sort of paced performance where it's just find my rhythm, find my rhythm, blitz through you in the big moment and can do that against Kubler already, then, again, like, how does he not end up top 200 after this summer?
1: Now, it is important to note that uh, the courts in Little Rock are playing best. Um, So maybe on a slower court, he wouldn't have had as much success. But I don't know. I think that he can bring that heavy lefty game to clay too. Um, Obviously, I'm sure, you know, having played with uh, college tennis, he probably plays a lot more in hard courts. Um, But I'm impressed. And I would love to see. Uh, ben play uh, Kovacevic in the final. I think that would be a really fun um, final. And I'm, I think that I was telling you this off air. Out of everybody who's like about to come, like onto the main ATP ITF Challenger, Ben Sheldon's the one that I think has the most potential out of out Sh- the college guys.
0: One more win gets him into the 385 range. If he wins the title, he's into the top 3 tw- uh, 330. If you were to bet. Again, because he got the wild card into Little Rock right now with his victory Ben up to a new career high live ranking. He's currently sitting, I believe, I don't want to be incorrect here, currently sitting at number 445, which is almost the vomit zone for challengers. Again, can you, you peek your neck in, maybe you get in, maybe you don't. Um, to qualies i mean with being the ncaa singles champion there will be some more wild cards available for them i think he's deserved it of them you know why isn't he playing at that level because he's been off playing college for all this time i think he's proven he should be at this level top 200 by the u.s open yes or no
1: that's a big leap i'll say yeah. no but i'll say he will be top 200 by this time next year interesting
0: um, i like I think- that
1: Next week, uh, there's an Orlando challenger. I have to imagine either he's got a special entry or or, or an exemption or something. Well, now he would,
0: right? By making the semis.
1: And, or at the very least, you know, given the uh, proximity to Gainesville, I have to imagine they'd give him wild card anyway if he didn't. Yeah, if
0: you're smart, you are. But to your point, he's got a battle on his hand tomorrow. He's going to take on Alexander Kovacevic, Kova, of or, course, the former All-American. Uh, well,
1: tomorrow um, – No, I thought well, he does play Kova.
0: No, that's uh, the final. Oh, they're on other sides of the draw. Yeah, Excuse yeah, me. You
1: mentioned it earlier. But yeah,
0: again, brain broken. But you look for, uh, again, you mentioned Kovacevic. We can go there next. He's now up to a new career high, number 304 in the rankings. And, of course, this is now he's done. First full year on tour. Now everything. He's got to defend points here the rest of the season. But he made it up to number 304, and he's into the semifinals of Little Rock. And if you watched his matchup today against Murphy Cossone, uh obviously was down a break there at the end of the first set, Cruises to a 6-1 second set. If you watch that first set breaker, the defense... Kova was playing that five all point in particular, just his ability to track down the extra ball and, you know, again, extend the rally, play some defense, make the match physical, looked a little bit more comfortable on that backhand wing as well. The other thing is just, again, the serve forehand combination. He has a weapon, he has a playbook. And when he's on his front foot, it doesn't really matter who you are. When Kova's striking the first serve well to set up the first forehand, if he gets a look at that first forehand, you're just in trouble. I mean, again, modern tennis is about weapons. He has them. There was a break point for him to take that early break in the second set. He had to make this high loopy backhand, which is just not a ball he was comfortable making two years ago. You see the strides he's already made in his pro career. And now going into a big summer, big momentum, semifinals here in Little Rock. Again, new career high live ranking of 304. Kova's in strike range. Like his goal, obviously, make qualities of the US Open on your own ranking.
1: Yeah, he won 86% of his uh first serves today, 30 of 35. That's yeah. really good. His serve and forehand are world class. And his backhand, as you mentioned, it's improving. It's still not where it needs to be to get to the ATP tour, but he's still only 348 in the world. So he has some time before he will have to face the music i guess but i'm so impressed with the servant is for and he's had some good wins this week he'd be jj wolf uh ulysses blanche now because who was playing really well coming into this match i think that now wu uh wu tong uh uh wu wu, wu, wu tong lin is going to be a tough one in the semifinals. But Mm -hmm. if he can serve like he did today, there's no reason why he can't win that match. It's going to probably have a tie break here and there. But I think that he is well on his way to moving into the top 250 in the world at the very least.
0: Yeah, because again, the serve the forehand, especially on a hard court are just going to work. And there were some on the rise backhand returns. He landed just was hitting comfortably moving forward comfortably as well. It doesn't overwhelm you with his size, but again, how heavy he hits that forehand, in particular that forehand cross court. I mean, go listen to the interview we did with Bjorn Fratangelo at the Cleveland Challenger two years ago. It's special. You can tell when you watch it. And so, yeah, it's a fun set of semifinals. Would love, I mean, again, if it's a Kova-Ben Shelton matchup in the final, you have to lean Ben right lefty into that one-handed backhand, just yeah. about the worst matchup Kova could ask for. At the same time, Ben's played a lot of tennis over the last five months. I mean, it's going to be a fun ending. And, of course— is going to be
1: tough, though. Yeah, no, Mike
0: Cation on the call as well. There's a lot to like. Yeah, Kubler, that's a battle.
1: Kubler is a good big serve— he can control the baseline with his forehand. I don't know if Ben is ready yet for that type of opponent, but you know, that level. I mean it's a great time. I don't want to doubt him. I don't want to doubt him though. I don't know. It's I'm I'm fascinated to see what happens tomorrow.
0: Let's play a game of guess the lines. What do you think they are? I'm not gonna look until we both guess.
1: Okay. Okay. Um for Kubler, uh Sheldon, I yeah. will say Kubler minus one seventy.
0: You look right now – oh, interesting. On DraftKings, they only have the doubles odds. It's okay. That's what they made our friends at Bovada for. You look right now, odds between Ben Shelton, Jason Kubler tomorrow. Interesting. What do you think? Interesting. Oh, I haven't guessed yet, have I? I'm going to say – I'm going to say – I'm going to say Kubler minus – well, I mean the thing is they don't know him like I do. So I might even say Kubler minus 200. Like honest to God, that might be the better bet. But guess what? They don't have the odds right now on Bovada either. So something fishy might be up. I guess we're still waiting to hear what time everything is tomorrow. And they're trying to figure out the schedule. Tennis
1: odds are never unt- – on. it feels like they posted- – yeah. Uh, It's tough
0: because you got to change him every day, right? And so it does get a little bit tricky. Uh, That said, we do have odds for Serbiton, and that's where I want to end today's conversation. Uh, Obviously, you look, as you mentioned, Andy Murray today with the straight set victory, tightly contested over Brandon Nakashima. Nakashima got a good win, by the way, over Stefan Kozlov early in this tournament. You look tomorrow. I mean, the best matchup of of the day is shviontek Goff. But I mean, Murray Kudla in the semifinals of Serbiton, I'll tell you what, the only time grass court tennis gets physical is when it's those two playing mm-hmm. and how well they keep the backhand low and just move it around the court. That's a really good match uh, between those two. And if there's not going to be points awarded at Wimbledon, Dennis Kudla should be awarded semifinal points for all of the weeks leading up to it, just in making up for it. Because again, it's Dennis Kudla season.
1: Yeah, Murray uh, looked really good today against yeah. uh, Nakashima. He just looks so comfortable on the grass. The shot selection is always on point with him. He knows how to work the points on the grass. He's he finds, like you said, he finds the way to make grass court tennis physical while still employing tactics that work on grass that might not work on clay at the end of the day, he was more in control of his ground strokes today compared to Nakashima, who was pretty good at times, but there were also times when he was pressing a little too much, overhitting, snatching at the forehand. And Murray, in that second set tie break, he just hit another uh, gear and just uh, took off and created that separation from uh, Nakashima. He's going to it's going to be tough for Kudla tomorrow um, mm-hmm. to try to hit through uh, Murray on the grass. What do you? How do you see that one playing out? Well, he, first of
0: all, he's moving so much better on the grass in this event than he did last year at Wimbledon. And I know he made a run at last year's Wimbledon, but he did not play well at last year's Wimbledon. He just found ways to win. He, meaning Andy Murray. Kudla's a different sort of beast. I mean, you look for Kudla today, straight set win over Purcell. Just again, how well Kudla hits the return of serve on this surface and how smart he is about opening up angles for himself and how low he keeps the ball. I mean, again, Andy Murray had a physical match today against Brandon Nakashima and, you know, played a six and six match in his round of 16 battle as well. I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get to see Paul Jubb or Jack Draper make the quarterfinal semifinal day because I think those are two young Brits. Obviously, Jubb, South Carolina Ties, former NCAA champion, Uh, worth watching. (sighs) Jordan Thompson into it as well. Shout out to Jordan Thompson, finally playing some good tennis. Much needed result. I mean it's a really good semifinal day. I think Murray gets through. You're right. I just think he's serving I, I think his serve is the bigger weapon between he and Kudla with everything else being fairly equal. And that's a credit to Kudla, by the way. That's not a diss on Andy Murray. That's how good I think Dennis Kudla is on Clay Courts. I mean I'm leaning yeah. Murray. I think Murray in a six and six or maybe a six three in the third sort of affair.
1: I'll say th- I'll say this about Murray's serve. And again, I don't really like Andy Murray that much either. So I again I'm being objective here. Every time there was a tight moment in- against Nakashima, he came up with a huge serve. Yeah. That's how many – I wonder how many aces he had today. Uh, it felt like it was a lot. Uh, no, me, you, like,
0: you know what the answer is? The answer is enough. Like he Aladdin. had enough – yeah, I mean he was just on fire, on serve. You're absolutely right. He played a spectac- I mean he just played such a smart match. It wasn't spectacular. It was just ruthlessly efficient, which at this point of his career is probably all we can ask for. And so I agree with – I mean again – Given the uncertainty surrounding everything else around Wimbledon, Andy Murray's getting the grass court reps in, and he's always been exceptional on grass courts, two-time Wimbledon champion. I'm not saying he's going to win Wimbledon, but again, all these young guys haven't played much grass court tennis. He'll be in the mix. It, it, like This level, if he sustains it, he'll absolutely be in the mix for a second week sort of run. Not like a run in the second week, but a run to the second week.
1: Speaking of your point that a lot of these younger players have not played a lot of grass court tennis. How many grass court matches do you think Ika Sviatek has played in her career?
0: It's under 15, right? Yeah,
1: it's, it's 12.
0: Yeah, it's 12 no, it's laughable. Like, again, Andreescu's played, like, fewer than 40 clay court matches in her career. And you're like, what? Like, really? Um, it's also
1: because of the pandemic. No, phase. that's
0: what it is. it is. That's yeah. why everyone's grass court numbers in particular are nuked, because it got canceled in 2020.
1: Yeah, and... And so that's kind of also, like you said, created some maybe uncertainty about who is actually going to know what they're doing. True. But
0: he guys a former junior Wimbledon champion, which is like the fun little wild card to put on the back of everything. Not that that really matters, but it kind of matters. Uh, and so, no, it's fascinating. But again, with all that said, uh, as always, my, it's a pleasure to get the chance to speak with you, David Gertler. Do you have any things to plug that we should be waiting for here on Championship Weekend?
1: Well, I I contributed to a best bets article on the (laughs) women's final tomorrow. Uh, I am going over 19.5 games. Interesting.
0: Uh, So you like it close. Five and three, by the way, that's 12. That's 21. That counts.
1: I I don't know. Is seven, five, six, three close? I guess relative to Sviatak it is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so if you want some analysis on that, I I can't say my confidence is too high on that one, um, just because it's Ekaterina Tech and we know how she raises through players. But- no,
0: I like it too. Seven five six two for me is twenty games. I like that feels like a good number. One close set, one less close set.
1: But that's and then I'll have a bunch of grass court stuff coming up next week. Uh, I can't again, like you said, it's just such an abrupt transition. Yeah,
0: all right. We like to hear it. Well, again, everyone can find it all. Uh, find his work at Tennis Blogger One, of course. Second time we've gotten the chance to speak with David Gertler, but if you'd like to hear from a different David, David Kane, on more thoughts on this women's singles final, go listen to yesterday's podcast as well as again, we're rocking and rolling here at Crack Rackets, providing all. Of you with the coverage of the year's second grand slam. We believe you deserve, of course. If you're looking for more coverage, head on over to our website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to all of our podcasts, share them with your friend. A shout out, as always, to super producer Daniel Westoff for the f- of an any job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well, tennis point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Gertler, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Ruskin. David, what do we tell our listeners?
1: That's the break.
0: And we will see you all next time. Thank you, as always, my friend.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it.